Welcome to PIDCAST, a podcast brought to you by the Piddington Society. This is a special edition of the PIDCAST. Our names are Amy, Rihanna and Amara and we are 2020 PID grads. This is a mini-series opening discussions relating to advocacy and criminal law with judicial officers of the Supreme and District Courts of Western Australia. This is episode two, part two. Episode two is our District Court episode and part two naturally follows on from part one. In part two, our district court guests continue their discussions on court appearances as well as advocacy more generally. Finally, they're on to share with us what justice means to them. Before we get into part two, we would like to extend our gratitude to Judge Sweeney SC, Judge Levy SC, Judge Troy and Judge Flynn for being guests on our podcast. What's the best way to always make sure that you have the relevant law at your fingertips in court? Um, well, you should always have the relevant legislation, that, assuming that you don't have a photographic memory of uh, every clause of the Criminal Procedure Act. Uh, so you should always have the legislation either in hard copy or in um, on an electronic device. But just to... And, and w- one will always have your, your own particular way of trying to have the law at your fingertips. But just to give an example as to how I try to have legal principles set up before me in case something controversial arises. Does anyone want to suggest a topic that might arise in a criminal case? PSA. All right, good example, Amara. So I have a a folder called Documents. Uh, If I was to go back to my files, I've got an A to Z folder. Uh, So I look at H, I click on that, and I've got Hearsay. I click on that, and it takes me to the Popovich Mm. case. If you look over there, uh, Ross on Crime is a reasonably well-known criminal text, and that's in the A to Z format. So, from, and that's what I've sort of modelled it on. So, A for alibi, let's say, and W for witnesses uh, unavailable because they're overseas and one party wants to read their statement in. Judge, can I was going to ask you: Is that like a program, or is that you that have set that up? I've set it up um, manually over the years when I was at the bar and then I when I knew I was going to become a a judge and there was quite a long period between learning that and becoming a judge I wrapped it up quite significantly so it does have to be manually created but you'll obviously be much more tech savvy than me in terms of what program you can have that it it, in some way you can get to it immediately and uh, Generally speaking, it covers most of the things, if not all the things that would pop up in a, in a criminal case at least. And just to follow on from Amy's question, when there is new judgments coming down from our Supreme Court Court of Appeal and the High Court you insert... I update it. Yeah. yeah. You don't discover what the law is on your feet when a judge just asks you a question and you start looking at your iPad rapidly. Um, you need to have some anticipation, some preparation, read a few cases before you go in. You actually don't generally need to be able to cite case by paragraph and reference you need to have the principles and if a case name is required then you'll be able to find one if necessary but um, just prepare in advance and you know nowadays we're so blessed with Mm. various services like Ostley and and you know the various um, kind of compendium services that get updated Mm. it's pretty easy to find out pretty quickly what the law is but don't do it when you're on your feet have that already done preferably i completely agree i think in some ways it's a blessing and a curse to have all that at the fingertips because i think for the new advocate they think well the answer to this question somewhere in this ipad Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and the reality is it's like you know the difference between an open book and a closed book exam as a student i mean uh you should just you know 
to go into an open book exam, you think, oh, well, I'll be able to find the answer in one of these, you know, my notebook somewhere, whereas the reality is under time pressure, uh, you, you don't, you're unable or unlikely to be able to find what you need. Mm. So, yeah, best to, I mean, often it's hard to predict, but it, if the point is going to come down to a few lines in a statute, then, you know, if it's going to be about interpreting words, then by all means have those words in big type in front of you so that you can bring everybody down to what's, what's relevant, but apart from that. Hmm. How important is it to be personable as an advocate? Well, it's going to make life a lot easier for you if you are. Um, because if you're appearing before a jury and you're obnoxious, it's harder for you to persuade them. If you're appearing before a trial judge or if you're appear appearing on a directions hearing or a civil trial, judges are human beings. So, um, you know, while we try hard to overcome that natural antipathy towards a council that's just being obnoxious from start to finish, why would you put that hurdle mm. in front of yourself? So, I mean, some people are just naturally charming. They're just absolute schmoozers and everybody loves them immediately. And, you know, we don't always sort of, we don't all of us sort of have that natural charm, but you do have to be polite and respectful and not be just unnecessarily antagonistic and cranky through the whole proceedings and, and some council seem to have it as a positive badge of honour that they yeah. are just difficult to get along with and I don't know why that is. Mm. Yeah and I think I would agree with everything that's said and I would add it's a mistake to think you can you can be charming only to the to, to the bench and perhaps to colleagues and and to behave appallingly to staff and to other people around you. <laughs> It shouldn't come as a shock that staff will occasionally pass on to <laughs> judges. You know, I was just roundly abused by this practitioner. Occasionally pass that on. Yeah. I think, I think and, it's fair to say... will be passed on. Yeah, it, it's fair to and say that whatever you do in the courtroom to the staff uh, will be passed on to the judge. And it, it, whatever comment you think was witty to make will be passed on to and, the judge. Yeah, and it, I take it doubly... Personally, on behalf of the staff, if somebody's yeah. rude to staff, I think, well, you can be rude to me, but mm. don't take mm. it out on someone who, mm. who's thing. So, yeah, be nice to, be nice to everybody, especially your mother. But <laughs> be nice to everybody. Everybody has their own style in advocacy. A good, a good thing to do is to watch as many advocates as you possibly can, not because you're going to be able to copy what they do, but to learn what not to do. You've got to develop your own style. You can never replicate somebody else's style. And there are, it's, I know it's a long way of getting around to the answer to the question, but there are very few people, very few advocates, that can get away with not being personable. But for the vast majority of us, it is so important to be liked as an advocate. There's nothing worse than an aggressive, abrasive advocate. And if you, if you watch jurors' faces, you'll see that they're immediately put off. It's a lot easier to be persuasive if you're nice than if you're aggressive or antagonistic um, in your approach towards the court and to witnesses. So the short answer is, personally, you don't have to be obsequious, but you will get a lot further out of, out of your, um, your career as an advocate if you are personable. Absolutely agree with that. Um, it's important, obviously, to bear in mind that appearing in court is not a social occasion so it's important not to speak as you would perhaps in a, in a bar or a, 
with a group of friends. So don't resort to slang or vulgarisms, but avoid being overly pompous, it seems to me. And be really careful with humour. Humour in the court setting very rarely works. Uh, you have to be very, very skilled to carry it off. And generally, if you do carry it off, you do so because you've been self-deprecating uh, or you're saying something that absolutely relates to the facts. If you try to bring in some external humour, it generally falls as flat as a pancake. Yeah, and, and so personable is probably not the right word. Um, respectful is probably a better word. Uh, to be respectful to everybody in the courtroom, from the judge to the witnesses to the court staff. Particularly the court staff, yeah. that was fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, so it, it, it is important. And as I say, watch, go and watch advocates and watch what they do. And I can guarantee you, you will learn, every time you watch, you'll learn something that you should not do. What type of behaviour in court is a distraction? Oh, let me count the ways. Uh, there's repetitious expressions so if you're the person who every time the witness answers a question says thank you for that and then ask your question thank you for that and then ask your next question anything repetitious even if it's a little noise even if it's a sort of a mm -hmm, um, when it's repeated it becomes very annoying mm -hmm. loud typing on a laptop clicking a pen flicking through papers and my my pet hate i loathe this is when you are an entourage so your role is to admire the person who you've turned up to admire so when he or she is making submissions and you're part of the entourage you sit there i won't be able to communicate this on a, an audio pod what i mean to say is you sit there smugly nodding your head constantly as though oh yes that's the most wise thing I've heard in a very long time. That's a fabulous submission. And then when the other side make their submission, you sit there shaking your head with this sort of, oh, that's just obviously such a stupid thing. And if you appear before me and you're a member of an entourage and you're nodding and shaking your head, you will be told to behave yourself or leave the courtroom. So I find that very distracting and annoying. I think that's probably because I've been a magistrate for so long. I think. I think once I drew the line when there was a jackhammer in the room next door to me. <laughs> I said, look, to, you know, to the staff, can you ask that person to stop jackhammering? <laughs> so, yeah. reno so renovations, you regard yeah, as yeah. distracting? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, look, it's all true. It's all... Um, in the end, we are... Actually, what I, what I would sometimes say to, to a really crowded room where everybody is talking and I'm literally struggling to hear, mm. I will sometimes say, everybody look at me. When you're sitting at the bar table, you want me to be able to hear you. You want me to give you, you know, my best five-minute work. And I need to be able to hear you. So please, please keep it out. Honestly, I don't know how you manage it. You know, I, I don't you know no how... Choice. Well, that's true. But I think it's fair to say I'd probably be very cranky if I'd been a magistrate because the number of people in the court and the number of matters in the list mm. and it's just this sort of you know, rugby match of people just grappling with each other. See, I'm, um, I'm struggling with the silence in the district court. Well, you, yeah, you're, I'm sure you get a little used bit to of, it. I want a little bit of rock and roll in the background. You'll get used to it very quickly, <laughs> uh, I'm sure. Uh, I'm, no, I'm afraid I like, I like it yeah, so no, quiet that a pin can drop. Yeah. Uh, and if there's someone in the back of the court chatting, hmm. I'll usually tell them in my best school mum voice, can we have less chatter in the back of the court? Yeah. And if it continues, I just say, look, if you want to chat, leave. Yeah, yeah I, I have n no distractions whatsoever. Yeah, yeah no, look, it, yeah. 
And I, I mean, I'm half serious. I think really we want the environment to be able to deliver our best work. Yeah. Uh, and to, in fairness to the parties. Uh, how we, yeah, it's a matter of getting that. Mm. Interesting to see how long it takes you to... Yeah, to become a... <laughs> To become a grumpy old man. Yes. No. <laughs> Anything that just uh, irks the person who's trying to pay attention to what you're saying, either the judge or the jury. So don't bring coffee into court. Dress appropriately. Um, be very careful with mobile phones. All of us will have been caught out at one stage or the other with a mobile phone, but you probably get into the habit of just switching the thing off when every time you walk into a court. One of the traps of the unwary is things like an iPad, which is, as I've try to demonstrate is actually really useful to have in court but can make a noise and it has interrupted one of my sentencing remarks once which is not good uh, not quite as bad as the instance when uh, I was listening to a defense closing address and Siri uh, on his phone interrupted him and informed him that Siri did not understand and so that is not what you want when you're speaking to a jury so it's funny Judge Troy mentions that because it happened yesterday in my court and it happened to be the dock guard whose phone was probably on, must have been on silent but all of a sudden from the back of the courtroom we had something to do with Google and not being properly the app properly not being properly downloaded and it wasn't just quiet it was and it went on and on <laughs> and on so and it's incredibly distracting and it was an, a quite an important part of the cross-examination so it, that, that's certainly distracting. The other big distraction from, from, uh, from, and no-no from my perspective is when you have counsel at the bar, at the table, chatting to each other. So you've got co-counsel and they're sitting there chatting and you can hear it. You can hear it. Everyone in the courtroom can hear it. It is so distracting. So that's, that's a big no-no. I mean, sometimes you can't avoid. You need to speak to counsel and whisper, and that's okay. But when it goes on for a protracted period of time, um, that's just something that shouldn't happen. Yeah, it's distracting to the judge, and it's um, pretty sure I uh, have an idea as to who might be involved in that, and it's distracting to the person's uh, opponent. It's just discourteous. How important is it to be passionate about advocacy? From my perspective, it's very important. But passion shouldn't be confused with other things. Passion shouldn't be confused, for example, with aggression. It shouldn't be um, confused with anything to do with anything other than your uh, pursuit of justice. And quite often, when you're looking at that, it's all about passion for advocacy starts with passion for the law. So often you see people who are overly enthusiastic and they're clearly passionate about advocacy. They're clearly passionate about what they're doing. But you need to take a step back and, and start from the beginning. And that means doing things like advocacy courses, um, watching people in court, uh, thinking about what you're going to be asking and why you're asking it. So passion, passion is very important. I think, I think that particularly in, in criminal law, you're either going to have it or you're not going to have it as an advocate. Um, and, and you can see people who are passionate about their, what they're doing. They care about their, what they're doing. They care about their clients. They care about pursuit of justice. But in doing so, don't lose sight of what you're actually doing and why you're doing it. Be objective. Be passionate, but be objective. I'm a advocacy nerd in the sense <laughs> that 
I've always found it really inspirational to look back over the work of great advocates in, in history. Not, not, as Judge Levy said earlier, to try to emulate someone immediately because you can't try to replicate someone else. You always have to rely upon your own individual skills and attributes. But advocacy is very, very difficult. There's no doubt about that. And uh, most fair-minded judges haven't lost sight of how difficult it is to be an advocate. But one of the solaces, I think, is if you absorb yourself in the history of advocacy, one, one can have different views about the criminal justice system, let's say, in different perspectives. But what seems to me to be consistent is that you have a system, an adversarial system, where you have two protagonists conducting the case rigorously, but generally with a degree of courtesy, adhering to the rules. And that over the years has generally, with obviously some exceptions, produced the fairest possible result that can be achieved. So it does seem to me that when you're starting out in your journey as an advocate, you, you're following in some pretty notable footsteps and you're, you're part of a very noble profession done well. So I would encourage people to read widely in terms of the great advocates of, of the past, look at uh, some of the quite useful texts that are out there as to how to become a more persuasive advocate. And it does seem to me that if you adhere to the basic rules, which we've touched on a little bit about advocacy, if you have a pretty good work and knowledge of the laws of evidence, you're going to be ahead of the game. And then the extent to which you are significantly ahead of your opponents will depend upon your innate uh, ability. But through mastery of the basic principles of advocacy and an understanding the rule of evidence, you will be a far better than average lawyer, it seems to me. To add to that as well, passion should never be equated with winning. So being a good advocate and being passionate does not mean that you need to win every time. Ultimately, what you're doing is a far greater role than just being the advocate for your client. In the end, you're participating in the wider criminal justice or the wider judicial system. So sometimes you can be extremely passionate. Sometimes you can do your best advocacy put in the most amount of work that you ever have, but lose. It doesn't mean that you've lost anything in terms of your passion or in terms of your credibility or reputation. And it's important not to lose sight of that. Winning is not everything. Winning is nice, but um, ultimately that's not why you're doing your job. What about the importance of being passionate about advocacy? You know, the short answer is actually not at all. It's not at all important that you be passionate about advocacy. It's just important that you be really good at it. And if you can achieve that without any passion, then good on you. People I know who are very good at advocacy do tend to be passionate about it. And when I say passionate about it, what I mean is recognising that it's an art, because I do believe it's an art, and recognising that it's an additional skill to being able to work out the content of what it is you're going to say. How you're going to say something, how you're going to deliver it, what's going to be your punchy opening line, what's going to be your powerful concluding line. That is all in the form of theatre and art form. And that's the same whether you're speaking to a jury or a trial judge in a civil argument or if you're just making the driest of dry legal submissions. Submissions don't actually have to be dry. They can always be put 
better than that. They can always be made more interesting. But as to whether you actually have to be passionate about it, uh, that, that's obviously a very subjective sort of thing. Um, but I believe you should take on uh, the challenge of being the best, the best advocate you can be, if that's the sort of lawyer you want to be. Obviously, the vast, the overwhelming majority of lawyers are not advocates. They don't set foot in a courtroom. The overwhelming majority, the people who actually want to get on their feet and do public speaking, which is one of those things that causes more stress to people on earth than anything else, you know, those people who want to do that are limited. So if that's what you want to do, you're probably more likely to be someone who enjoys advocacy and sets yourself a high standard. But there are people who, who work as advocates who I truly believe loathe public speaking and never want to be on their feet, but somehow they ended up here. The word passionate is, I think, overused. <laughs> uh, and, and I think it, it would definitely be a distraction to become passionate in the sense of emotional about your side. Mm. Or too passionate, actually, in terms of your delivery. Yes, you need to be, a, uh, you need to be dispassionate yes. to, to, to do your job. Yes. I think what's interesting to me, I think as beginners, I think stick with mastering the brief, learning the skills. But there, there does come a point where I think we're lucky to have experienced advocates who, who really are masters of their art. And it's a bit like an artist, I think. They can, they can in some way break the rules and thereby draw you in to their web and have a, have, a, have a chance of persuading you. I can remember probably one of the greater, one of my sort of memorable moments in court was someone had flown in from East Coast really just to cross-examine someone and we only had a limited amount of time and they just did a masterful job. And what struck me was that that, that person was spending as much time watching me as they were as watching the witness. They were watching my reaction to see what I was interested in. And I found myself watching what the watching the fact that they were watching me, because they were tweaking the cross examination according to how I was reacting to what was I was being heard. Mm. So that's just an example of how you can you know with experience and I think a natural talent take things. But it's just it's it's, it's another form of lawyering. My first job as a lawyer was with a, a solicitor in a litigation section in a medium-sized firm who never stood on his feet. He briefed barristers, he sent junior lawyers down to do appearances, and to this day he's one of the best lawyers I've worked with, just was masterful at running the file, getting the results for clients. So not everyone's built to stand up on their feet. Um, well, actually, I think most people aren't. Yeah. I do, I think most people are not, and most lawyers are also not particularly interested in doing it because they're more interested in mergers and acquisitions and yeah. property cases and, and it just doesn't that their natural interest levels just don't take them to yeah. the courtroom those of us who end up on our feet are actually a, a small part of the mm. lawyer breed but I do I do feel quite strongly and I've said this in advocacy kind of sessions before I do think it's a cop-out for an advocate to just persuade themselves that these things are all determined on the evidence. There are strong cases, there are weak cases, there are cases in the middle. Um, I kid you not, you can lose a really, really strong case. It is possible to do it. You've got to work at it, you've got to approach that with effort, but you can lose a really, really strong case. And if it's a really, really weak case, the odds are that you can't swing that and you probably shouldn't because if you pull a rabbit out of a hat it may not survive on appeal but then there's that whole grey middle area where the case could go either way and I do think it's a cop out to just sort of see your role as an advocate to just 
leading the evidence and then sort of throwing it over to the bench and see what happens as though it's a raffle. Uh, I do think that an advocate can take that middling case a long way uh, and make a, a bit of a silk purse out of a sow's ear if, if necessary. Because um, as I say, we're all human beings. I mean, the juries particularly, mm. I think, can be very swayed by good advocacy. But so can judges. If there's an advocate who makes that argument seem precise and logical and compelling, well, why would you as a judge not be more persuaded to that side? So I think it's, it, it's important to take on that ambition of being a really good advocate and working at it because it takes work. I always found the advocacy part of things, and I'm talking now more about the art form rather than just the slog of leading the basic evidence, but the art of what words will I use, what are the fine nuances, what, what impression do I want that jury to have in my opening address before they've even heard the witness. I actually thought that was the fun bit. I, you know, I probably am guilty of being passionate about advocacy, but it was because it was the fun bit. It was in a law degree which was unspeakably dull. Mooting was the fun bit, and mooting was all we could do when I was in law school. We didn't have witness advocacy and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, I do feel the law is, is a very dry pursuit, and it's fair to say, I just, I just fundamentally don't understand lawyers who don't want to be in the courtroom. I, I just don't get it. Um, it's it's the fun bit, it's the exciting bit, and it's for, for me it was always the challenging bit. How to make that audience see it the way I wanted them to see it. And I really, as an advocate, I wanted that jury to be able to see that crime being committed as though they were there in the room when it happened. Uh, and that was the sort of the challenge that I took on, and I just, I just enjoyed it. But it required work and thought. And it wasn't a matter of sitting down and writing about it. It was it, that work just happened unbidden when I was doing a trial. It, it was really all I ever thought about. It was just always in my head, and I was always thinking about the best way to do it. And that for me wasn't a chore. There was a lot about the law that that is a chore, but that wasn't the bit that was a chore. So if that makes me passionate, then well, yeah, I think I'll, I'll pick up on the last because I think I, if how how important is it to be passionate? I would say. How important is it to be prepared about advocacy? It's everything, and that's the work. To get to that point, and I regret not being in the room when you were in front of the jury, mm. it takes work, and that's mm. what it comes down to. And it actually does. You just... There's no substitute. It, it, there's no substitute. I mean, obviously, some people are more talented than others, um, but once you start doing court work that has any complexity whatsoever... It really is. It's preparation, preparation, preparation. Mm. You know, the art is to make it seem as though that came out spontaneously and with a freshness. Uh, and to, if you are examining a witness, to make it seem as though that's a, a personable conversation between you and the witness and so that it doesn't sound rehearsed and robotic. But what achieves that is not actually having a fresh conversation or just standing up on your feet at the end of the trial and thinking, well, what was this about? What shall I say? There's actually a lot of work 
goes into giving the impression of freshness uh, and keeping it interesting. Um, but yeah, I, although I mean, I'll, I'll never rule out the possibility of just you know that the natural genius who can just wing everything. Uh, mostly, it's preparation that that achieves it. say incrementally when I do recall as a young prosecutor just sort of reaching that point and I don't know how long I've been prosecuting for not for long but I just sort of reached that point where I sort of felt I don't know a bit bored with the way I was doing things or I just felt that that just wasn't as good as it could have been and it was at that point where I had and I'm not saying you ever completely overcome nerves because I never overcame my nerves and a lot of people don't overcome nerves but it was when I had overcome the sort of the crippling nerves of how do I ask a non-leading question and is my witness going to turn up and oh my god the judge is looking at me what is it what am I meant to be saying now <laughs> so once I'd sort of overcome that just just fear of the first stage and it started to become a bit of a pattern and that I think is when the boredom started to set in and that's when I started to become more conscious of the fact that I could make this more rewarding for me and for my audience. So it's a sort of a mastery of the absolute basic skills, the most basic skills. You just can't hope to get up on your feet for the first time and just have it all come out mm. beautifully and eloquently and have everybody in the courtroom think, Good Lord, who was that wonderful young yeah. lawyer? You know, you just you've just got to get to that stage where you you sort of know what you're doing a little bit, and then you can become a little bit more ambitious. And you might think you're doing a, a, a fab job when you became more ambitious. You're starting to think more about how to work with your, the words that you're using, but then you sort of reach another stage where you realise that that's probably a bit mediocre, and you can lift your game. And I just think that continues throughout your career and if you're lucky and I was very lucky I juniored some very good people really good skilled talented advocates and you'll see them do some particular sort of form of cross-examination and you won't have heard it before and the moment you hear it you know how impressive that was you know how well that worked and you can't just say to yourself well I'm going to copy that I'm going to turn into John McKechnie, or I'm going to turn into Ron Davies, and I'm just going to cross-examine the way they do. But when you hear them do something, and you think, now that was clever, I liked that, you just sort of store it up in your brain. And it might be a decade goes by before the perfect moment arises when that's when you want to use that method of cross-examination. And I mean, you know, for example, um, John McKechnie, remember him years ago just sort of saying to some accused, uh, now, look, I could cross-examine you for the next hour and ask you whether you committed this offence, but you're never going to admit it, are you? And the accused said no. Um, and he said, right, well, we won't waste everyone's time doing that. And then he moved on. And there was Brown and Dunn complete, we completely complied with if anyone needed it complied <laughs> with. And it was just so effective to then move on and do something totally different. And I've only used that once, but when I used it once, it was just that moment when I knew that putting all the accusations to this person was going to be ineffective so I could pull that out. 
I mean, Ron Davies once, I saw him cross-examine an accused and he just asked the accused the same question and got a non-responsive answer. He asked the same question, got a non-responsive answer. He used the same question, got a non-response. It went on and on and on and on to the point where the jury were just looking at this accused as though, you know, you dreadful murdering person because they just were refusing to answer the question. And again, I mean, I, it's not something you would do often, but many years after that, um, a stalker gave me that exact perfect opportunity and so yeah, credit to Ron Davies, I just did exactly the same thing. Just ask the same question, word perfect, and just keep asking it and watch them hang themselves. And so if you're lucky enough to have seen good skilled advocacy, you learn an enormous amount. I never recommend that anyone try and become anyone mm. else, never copy anyone else's style because it's got to be you and it's got to come from your own personality. But you can learn so much from seeing just these techniques that people can use and you can adapt them and wait for your moment. I think it, you never stop learning uh, in terms of being mm. an advocate. And of course for me now as a judge, now my challenge, it's not as much fun, but it is still a challenge, is how do I communicate this unbelievably dull, dry law in a way that they understand and grab and can retain when they're deliberating. And that is that is a challenge, trying to make your charges to the jury simpler and shorter. And, and I can't say I've achieved it, but that, that's my challenge. Mm. Mm. No, look, I th it's interesting. I mean, I think the young people don't want to hear this, but it's, it's the case that there are some advantages as, as you get older. And one of those is you become more confident mm. uh, uh, with your skills. And um, that's what it comes down to. Uh, and, you, and you should use that confidence and back yourself. I think that's, that's the, other, mm. um, the other message. And I think the same with judges. I think you can't use someone else's voice. I've started this job. I've been given really a, there's a, a great collection of resources of different charges that people use to juries mm -hmm. and uh, certainly you know initially was tempting to well this is really good this is really good this is really good I'll you know and I found myself copying and pasting and in the end it was just much easier to say right <laughs> I'm just going to write my mm -hmm. own and read what the others have said um, because you have I think in any in any role you have to find your own voice you do and and it does come gradually and you get more confident and you also get more competent mm. um, but it, it's a long slow road you just can't expect that you get fresh out of law mm. school uh, and you know immediately you're Perry Mason it just it just doesn't happen that are, way if you listen to uh, observation and that's in some ways that's why I think the judges associates are great well you've got the best seat in the house mm. and um, so if you can to your observation listening um, take it on board, take it all on board. Yeah. In fact, even, I was going to say, but I mean, being a judge's associate is, is a great learning uh, experience because you not only see good advocates, mm. but you see truly bad advocates. <laughs> and you can actually learn, I yeah. think, quite a lot from the truly bad advocate. Um, things that are just stunningly ineffective or cringeworthy. And of course, the, the truth is that most people in the profession are neither appalling nor brilliant they're just sort of in the middle but sometimes they'll do things really effectively and other times not so effectively it's all 
it's all a learning experience. I think you learn hugely from watching other people. So the final question that we ask all podcast guests, what does justice mean to you? Uh, well, I would say that justice is determining what are just desserts and giving out just desserts. So in a civil case, that may mean compensation and whatever is due in a criminal case, just desserts might be an acquittal, it might be a conviction. Um, but the judge, I think, if the judge is the fact finder, then they have to determine what what the situation is, what the just desserts are. If it's a jury, they have to make that decision, but then of course the judge is sentencing. Uh, so to me, it's about, it's about determining and dispensing what is due. That also, of course, brings in concepts of fairness and equality and those sorts of things. But I think that's, I actually thought that question was quite hard, but I think that is fundamentally what I think justice is. It's a very hard question. And I wrote down one word, which was proportionality, which is a very similar word to what uh, I hear, what I heard you say. Mm. Um, and it's within the, it's all within the context of the rule of law. And I would answer it this way. I went home, I was very nervous about taking on this job because I felt as a magistrate, I could occasionally get a good result for people in the room, improve their lives or at least make their life less difficult. And I was nervous that I would not have that opportunity in this job. Anyway, twice in the last month, I've gone home and said to my wife, I've done justice today. Mm. And once was uh, a day where a man really wanted to be dealt with for breaching a, a, an order. He had some mental illness and my instinct as a nervous new judge was, well, we should put this off for a, some sort of report or something. But the lawyers were there and keen and I said, well, if I was, let's do it, let's deal with it. And we got verbal reports, organised things, and it was able to be dealt with that day. And it was clearly the right thing to do. Mm. Um, so that was one day. And the other day, I'd read this file and I thought, this six-year-old child should not have to give evidence in this trial. We can perhaps bring the parties in and work out whether or not that can and can't, cannot be achieved. And through a series of events, that we were able to achieve that. And again, I could go home and say, you know, to my wife, we did justice today. I had a tiny part in that. So I think, but it's still all about proportionality within the rule of law. There's a limited, I'm one of a number of players in a system. We're all governed by the law. But I think we can um, do our bit to nudge it in the right direction. And that's justice, I think. I think what justice isn't, and I find sometimes find this disheartening, is that justice isn't to search for the truth. And I think sometimes counsel think it is a search for the truth, and I'm sure juries sometimes think it is. Um, but we have an imperfect system, and we don't have an omnipotent arbiter. So we're actually dealing in proof, not a search for the truth. And I have many times presided over criminal trials and either thought quietly to myself or loudly announced um, to friends of mine that uh, the truth didn't emerge during that trial. And you, you do have those trials where the truth is undoubtedly somewhere in the middle, but for all of the fact that the witnesses were on oath, no one told the truth during that trial. And you also have cases where the evidence is about an accused. It's not actually an inquiry into 
the guilt or otherwise of a whole bunch of other players who are involved on the periphery. So it's not a it's not a judicial inquiry. It's a question of whether the proof is sufficient against a particular accused. Um, and sometimes that sort of shows up just in inadequacy in the system. But it is it is the best we've got. I do believe in our legal system, um, but. As I say, there are times when it's disheartening and there are also times when in sentencing, um, again in a criminal case, I do feel there is no good outcome. There is nothing I can do in this case that actually is a good outcome for anyone. And I do also feel in civil cases sometimes there is no good outcome. Uh, the difference with civil cases is that quite often I feel that that's as a result of bad choices that the parties have made in actually bringing the matter before the court. Um, I, don't, I don't enjoy doing trials in civil where the amount in issue is so small that I am aware that whoever loses this trial is going to be paying for the rest of their lives for an enormous legal bill from the other side that should never ever have been incurred because there just should have been some common sense years earlier. Uh, and that, that can be disheartening. Um, but as I say, it's, it's the best system we've got if people want to bring their disputes before the court and can't settle them um, like reasonable people, then that's, that unfortunately is the price they pay. The, the loser will be paying the other side's costs. I mean, there are, there are obviously many cases where one can easily understand why this matter couldn't settle. It's genuinely difficult. It's a genuine dispute, and so they come to the court for assistance. But there are other times when you really feel that um, common sense ought to have prevailed. So it's not all beer and skittles at the district court. <laughs> Some sentencing situations, they truly are just oh. just miserable. You know, yeah. you just you're just dealing with just a miserable yeah. situation where you have, particularly where you have a person who may have uh, mental illness through no fault of their own, and yet they are dangerous. Uh, so they're morally not very responsible for what they've done but they are dangerous and that's just the truth of the situation and the community needs to be protected and yeah that's that's where there's really mm, there's really not much of a good outcome in there but mm, nevertheless what does justice mean to you achieving as fair result as is possible for the people most directly connected to the case uh, applying well-settled rules and principles and reflecting where possible community expectations. I've thought a lot about this concept and think about it every single day uh, of my life in terms of being a lawyer. And for me, the litmus test as to whether I'm actually contributing positively, whether I'm actually upholding what I believe are the important notions of justice, is at the end of the day whether I feel comfortable with what I've done. So being a judge, probably the most difficult aspect of applying justice comes in the form of actually in sentencing. Uh, it's the most difficult balancing exercise that you ever undertake. You've got community interests, you've got the interests of the accused, you've got the expectations of the system, um, you've got the need to punish, rehabilitate people, considering the victims of a crime. All of those come into the mix. And in the end, um, you're required to uphold justice. And in balancing that, in, in applying all of those fundamental and 
important notions and principles, you become the embodiment of justice. And ultimately, you have varying views. People have different views about it. Some people are more harsh than others in sentencing. But for me, at the end of the day, I, I think about all of this and I think about whether I'm comfortable with what I've done. And when I say I'm, I'm not just saying my personal views, whether I'm comfortable, whether I've applied everything in taking into consideration in arriving at the appropriate sentence, and whether what I've done, I believe, is in the, the true interests of justice. And when I say interests of justice, I mean everybody, the community, the offender, the victims, um, and so for me that's what justice is. It's a feeling of not contentment in any way, but feeling like you have achieved justice. From Amy, Rihanna and Amara, we wanted to say thank you for listening to this podcast mini-series. We extend our sincere gratitude to our honourable guests, the Piddington Society, and all those who assisted in the production of this series. Without wanting to sound too cliché, if you liked the content, then please like, subscribe and or leave us some feedback.